Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. Today we are looking at Ask Nick episode 65, going back a few months and talking about dealing with disrespect, talking about things in a modern jazz curriculum that you think might be missing, meaning me, that I think might be missing, and will big bands last? The big question, will big bands last? So this and much more coming up in this episode. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Leave us a review if you've got a minute, and of course, uh, tell people about what we're doing, and uh, enjoy enjoy listening to Ask Nick number 65, and uh, we'll catch you real soon. I thought I might start off the day by um, talking about a few things, but also sharing uh, what's coming up. What's coming up is a masterclass on Monday for anyone that is interested. You can find that on my website. Um, it's a pay what you can masterclass, so anybody's invited on Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central. Uh, you can figure out the corresponding uh, times from there. And in that masterclass, we're going to be uh, talking about jazz improvisation from the beginning. So uh, we're gonna go ahead and use um, all of me as kind of a jumping off point for that masterclass on Monday. But today I thought while people are joining up and while people are getting here onto the stream, uh, I thought I would go ahead and um, play a little bit before all people are getting in, people are dropping in their questions. And so we're gonna just kind of preview what's coming up on Monday with that. So we're gonna, I'll just do a little playing here, a little bit of uh, all of me. Thank you. 
funny moment or moments that happened to you on a gig probably uh, there's definitely funny moments on gigs i mean the thing that happens over and over again to me is uh, i'll show you this happens over and over and over to me on gigs that now that my practice i used to have a yamaha like a big silent brass right and uh, it's been years since i switched to like having a, a small one this one is a okura mute i haven't gone a month probably or like any, any tour, like at some point, I will inevitably play uh, th with this in the bell. And I feel like everybody does. You go start the first note of the show and, pfft, and you're like, oh, crap, this is still in my slide, still in my bell. It happens constantly, so much so that it's really quite annoying when it happens because I'm like, really? Again? I did that again? If you saw in the <laughs> Desert Island Instrument trombone or piano, no, I can't have both, huh? I mean, I'm fine with either one, really, but I think... Uh, I mean, piano would be probably more interesting in the long term, but I would also be okay with trombone. Do you think electronic trombone will ever exist? And I think what you're talking about is um, like an iwi version of trombone. There's like plenty of people, including myself, that have delved into electronics with trombone, turning it into, but there's also a new, um, I don't know if it's still, I ran across it on Instagram sometime over the pandemic. There's a, actually a microphone that will convert things into MIDI. So if you take that and play the trombone into that microphone, it should theoretically turn it into a MIDI signal. So um, I think that, yes, it does exist. You just have to be creative. There's not like an iwi in the same way. But um, that thing turns into MIDI, your signal into MIDI, and then that MIDI can go into a synthesizer, and the synthesizer can output the MIDI. So there's also some pedals, um, an electroharmonics synth pedal, and there's a, a POG pedal. And there's some other pedals you can use to um, make it sound like a synthesizer. Um, so the deeper you get into it, the more you can do. I'm not like the, the expert on pedals and stuff like that. I've delved into it a little bit, but you can do it. All right, thoughts on Charles Mingus? I love Charles Mingus. I, thought, I think he's a pioneer of just doing your own thing, you know, like in an era where a lot of guys were kind of following in the footsteps of others and, you know, playing bebop, he was doing his thing. So... Uh, and he's not afraid to like play weird notes. He's not afraid to assert his opinion and be political. And I, so I, I aspire to be more rough around the edges like that, you know, to me, Do, re regardless of his, his personality or his, uh, you know, personal failings, as we all have, you know. When you first got started leading your own band, did you ever have trouble dealing with musicians who didn't respect you? Did you try to make those relationships work? This is just one opinion. But I think the, there's a balance there between knowing what you're doing for them and what they're doing for you. 
I think at the beginning they are doing, I always thought of it as the, the band is doing me a favor and I need to go out of my way regardless of what I can afford to one, pay them as much as I can, give them as much leeway as I can and to be as courteous and grateful as I can. Although I, you know, it's definitely a challenge when you have, you know, those things like, oh, they're, they disrespect you or not disrespect you isn't really even the right way to put it, I guess. It's more like, you know, they're just like, oh, I'm just doing this guy a favor, you know. As you move along the spectrum, the more you can pay, the more you can, basically, the more you can demand of the band that you're working with, whether they're your friends or not, you know. There's always going to be kind of a blurry line between social and business in music. That's just the nature of it. And it's, it can be tricky. You know, I think, at least in my experience, what I would say is as long as you are clear of expectations kind of upfront, you know, like that generally will kind of make all the problems a little less. Like if you, as long as you are upfront about, you know, all the details, what it pays, what the expectations are, what the time expectations are, like, you know, one thing that happens sometimes that's pretty annoying is you agree to do like, and it, it's nothing against my a friend or anything like that. It's just a situation that becomes hard is like if you book a gig, for example, but when you book the gig, you don't book the rehearsals at the same time or even express that you want to rehearse. And then two, three weeks later, you come back you're like, okay, we need to book three rehearsals. And then you try and then everyone in the band is like, uh, you know, I'm already giving you the time for free of playing this gig because I, I like you and I want to support your music and all this kind of thing. So there's a balance there of just like, as long as you're going to be upfront from the beginning, if you aren't clear in the beginning and then you get in a hairy situation, I don't know how to come back from that other than just making the best of it, I think. Yeah, so that's a little bit tricky, but if, I think as, as clear as you can be upfront with how you're going to um, handle a situation is the best way forward, I think, um, in terms of being able to make sure that your band wants to work for you and just letting them know that they're appreciated. What does your menu look like for your meals while on tour? What do you like to eat that also keeps you sustained tour long? That's an interesting question. So about three, actually it's gotta be longer now. About five years ago, I discovered that every time I would go on tour, I would gain a lot of weight just because when you're on tour, like there's not as many healthy options. Usually the back, the the green room is filled with snacks and candy and blah, 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 blah. And so as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, what foods kind of trigger my body to like store more fat and blah, 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 blah. So I started intermittent fasting like five years ago because I knew that I couldn't control what was going to be available at the venue, for example, but I could control, you know, when I was going to eat. So I won't eat until four o'clock or something like that. And then, um, eat before the gig, maybe a snack after the gig, and then don't eat again until the next day, uh, around four o'clock. So and for me, that worked okay, you know, and for other people, it doesn't work super well, and it's hard, they get, they don't like the fasting thing. But, um, you know, I, there's a lot of research around fasting. And I, I've just now at this point, I've been doing it for a long time. So I don't even think about it much back in 2009, 2008, even, I, I um, kind of started uh, trying to change my own decisions about food and eating and kind of cut out all the things that I had been eating. Like uh, there was a Wendy's in between Eastman and my apartment, and that was a frequent a frequent stop until then. And then I, at that point, um, I decided no more fast food, no more soda and a few other things. And um, I just cut it all out and uh, went on you know, a journey there. And you know, I was a lot, lot heavier when I was at Eastman. 
if there was anything you could tell your younger self before you started gigging, for, gigging professionally, what would you say? It doesn't matter so much. Uh, I would get stressed about everything, every gig, being on time, being there early, all those things are good, but like if I had just come at it with a more relaxed angle, I would have enjoyed it more, you know, especially now looking back, there's so much stuff that I didn't enjoy because I was just, you know, running from place to place and not uh, appreciating what was going on. I specifically can say that I remember thinking in certain locations like, oh, I'll be back here again. I don't need to go do X, Y, Z, or I can stay here and just work on this, or I don't need to go out and meet this person. I'll be back here. But no, <laughs> you don't know, you know? If anything, the last year has taught us it could be that in particular. So that is what I would tell myself, chill out. Favorite Wycliffe Gordon jazz composition? I'm gonna be selfish and just say he wrote a couple of tunes for me, so I'll say those. There's one called uh, The Nick of Time. I like that one. That's not really probably my favorite, but it is one. Favorite jazz slang term? I'll just say the ones I use a lot. Cats is something I say a lot. I used to say things were out a lot. I don't say that as much anymore. Like, oh, that's out. Like, that's uh, not cool. That's not not happening. Uh, is there a location you haven't toured yet that you'd love to? I still haven't gone to Japan. I was supposed to go to Japan last summer. And Japan is high, high, high up on my list of where I'd like to go, but I haven't gone and I would love to get back. The trombone festival was supposed to be there and then it got canceled because of COVID. So yeah, that's number one. How do you keep clarity and speed in the high range? By playing the same sort of stuff you play in the mid range and the high range until it's, until it's comfortable. Um, most of the time that means adjusting your articulation and adjusting your articulation to a like more E or I based syllable. Like like if you just sing into that upper register, you go from ah ah to e, right? So anyway, so you got to make sure that you're playing with the right vowel sound. That's a very quick fix. If you haven't thought about vowel sounds, it's a very long fix. But if you do think think about vowel sounds when you play. That's an easy way to get the compression inside of your mouth and the airflow faster so that you can articulate and play into the upper register. Uh, when do you use A flat in first, if ever? The only time I use it is if I'm playing a transcription and that person happened to play A flat in first. Curtis does that sometimes. Um, and I also do it when I want it to be a blue note. Uh, and JJ does it sometimes too, when, it, when it's a blue note, like in a B flat blues, for example, or in an F blues, you can play that you know play up up there like uh but otherwise it's just too flat you know otherwise you know that was one of that was one of my uh teachers his pet peeves if, uh, as if i would play an a flat and first and so now it's one of my pet peeves and i uh, take it out on my students so sorry guys uh but i mean it has a, it has a definitely a, a vibe you know that first position has a vibe. You got to use it. If you play it like trying to play in tune with another person, you're never going to, it's not going to work. But uh, if you're playing it as a, like a, a flavor, you know, vibe, then it's cool. Vibe. There's another one. Another jazz, jazz slang. You've been given a grant to assemble the Nick Finzer Dream Big Band. Assume it's for millions of dollars for anyone in the world and they will say yes. My default is always, is always usually to call my friends, right? So I'm going to try to not do that in this dream band scenario here. And since my big band would likely play a variety of music, it would probably not like just be like a repertoire big band. Assuming that like my big band probably isn't going to play like rep, you know, it's going to be arrangements of by people in the band or like my tunes and stuff like that. 
I would call, I would have to call a person, uh, I'm thinking of the rhythm section first. So it would be people that can play like strong in a small group as well as in a big band. Even though he's not maybe known as a big band drummer, I think I would try to call Eric Harland first. And if he couldn't do it, I mean, Jimmy McBride, who's my go-to drummer, would also do a great job. But I would say um, I would maybe call Eric Harland. If I couldn't get Eric, maybe Ulysses Owens Jr. and then Jimmy. I could also maybe call Carl Allen. On bass, then, since they play together a lot, uh, I would then say Dave Holland. The piano in a big band has to be somebody that can also comp really well. See, I would ask Herbie. I don't think he would do it because Herbie is probably like one of my favorite living pianists and you know, he's just a legend. But um, if I had to be a slightly more practical, it would be cool to get somebody like Kenny Barron, but I don't know if he would fit like some of like more modern stuff or if something had like a synthesizer too. I've always loved um, like Aaron Parks' playing, but I've never heard him play in a big band. One of those guys, <laughs> guitar, um, Lionel Luecke. So it's basically becoming like a dream, a mixture of like a dream band that I would have and a dream band that for like a small group and a big band and then also a dream band of a uh, big band. Uh, All-star trombone section. Okay, let's see. We got to have Marshall, right? You got to have Michael Deese, I think. You got to have Steve Davis. You got to have somebody like like Jeff Nelson or Jennifer Wharton or Doug Provience playing bass trombone. Somebody that can really do it. You know, Jeff Nelson is powerhouse, so I guess I would say. And then trumpets, man, I don't, I don't know about trumpets. I would have to have probably Phil Dizak in there, uh, a great lead trumpet player like Tony Cadlick. Um, I love uh, Nadia Nordhaus's playing, uh, so I would ask her again. Now we're getting to mixing friends and and people, but and then somebody like totally different, probably like maybe Ambrose, someone that could like offer like a kind of different vibe uh, would be good. Tenor chairs. Um, I would ask Lucas Pino because he, I think he's good and he plays bass clarinet. And so an essential part of my big band would be that the tenor players both have to double on bass clarinet, which leaves less people. So the second person would have to be probably Chris Potter because he also plays bass clarinet. It could be Seamus Blake or it could be, it could be uh, John Ellis. Sorry, I don't know why I was blanking on his name. And then, okay, alto saxophone. We have to be somebody that can double really well. I think like Ted Nash would be one person, but then you want somebody else that has like a contrast, plays like more soulful um with like a great sound you know so who, who would i pick on alto you know somebody like um kenny garrett let's say kenny garrett he can be he can also be in the big band and then on barry somebody that also plays bass clarinet and has a really good sound i like i mean my buddy andrew gutowskis is really great and he plays bass clarinet so there we go okay that was a really long okay steve will see i can't do this this is too hard of a question jazz combo recently got hired for a house band gig the owner hired us to play straight ahead material but the crowd requests us to play r&b should we keep our brand or play to the venue maybe the owner doesn't understand that what he wanted was r&b you might ask him you might ask him what he what he wants as you're like if you're the house band you know if it's my band doing my music then I would play my stuff, what I want to play. If I was hired to run a house band for a purpose, I would try to make sure that the the purpose is being fulfilled. So if that purpose is playing R&B, if that purpose is playing funk, if that purpose is to play straight ahead or Latin, whatever it is, you know. So that's how I would think about it. Is like, is this my gig to do my thing or is this a gig to do what somebody else is paying me to do, you know, for example, for that example of that that place. Is there anything about jazz education that you think is missing in most curriculums? Do you think big, big bands will be the lasting ensemble in all schools? Ooh, good question. Uh, no, I don't think that big bands are going to stand the test of time. 
there are hardly any big bands that can that work that much. I think uh, medium-sized ensembles, creative, si creatively instrumented. That's not word. That's not how you word that. But creatively orchestrated pieces, things that are like ensembles, crossover between jazz and classical, maybe even jazz, classical, and pop music, like all that kind of stuff. I think large ensembles are most likely, you know an institutional thing that'll stay, but I don't think it's necessarily quote unquote the future. I think if you like hear music in that way, but otherwise I think like it's more interesting if you have a large ensemble that's the instrumenta instrumentation that you hear. That's t that's 10 horns or 12 horns or 100 horns, whatever it is, but like I don't think, I mean, it's like a, it's a good jumping off point, I think. Uh, and other things that I think are missing in most curriculums are practical, like project-based uh, assignments. You know, I think that it's silly that we have only one recital. Um, there's a lot of practical considerations that throw these ideas out the window. I'll just say that, like when you get into the actual running of a program or you're involved in a program, that like just because I say like, oh, this would be a great idea, does not mean that it's necessarily that feasible. So I'm going to say that I'm not, I'm not um, including feasibility in the, in these ideas. My my thought is that uh, you want to be doing projects, having more than one recital. Um, focusing on getting out and playing as much as you can. Um, a lot of that stuff is missing and it becomes encapsulated, you know, on the campus and it becomes encapsulated into like, this is my class and this is what I got to play for class, you know. Um, so that's a struggle. You know, room for creativity. I go back and forth because I go back and forth on this. Like people want, want to talk about like how specific should you be in teaching improv class of like, should I show you language? Should I make you go get the language on your own? Should I tell you what language to play? Should you emulate the players that you love? Should you emulate the players that I like? And I think ultimately it has to be a mixture of a lot of things. Am I trying to train you to be a musician that can do all things? Am I trying to train you to be an artist that sounds like yourself? You know what I mean? Like there's different people who have different goals. So ultimately it's really difficult to create a curriculum that accounts for all the different types of people that are going to come through a program and are going to, what they need. And that's how you end up with kind of like sometimes a vanilla kind of middle of the road approach, which focuses on, you know, tr traditional jazz standards and 40s, 50s, maybe some 60s you know, 1940s, 50s, 60s repertoire. Some people go backward. Some people want to go forward. Um, I think it's important to make, my theory about it is that you have to, as your, as your own person, decide like where your strengths are and where your interests are and kind of double down on those in addition to being informed about the rest of it. So I wouldn't say like I'm an expert about um traditional jazz in the way that Trenton, who's on this stream here, is like has a band that plays trad jazz. Like I would not do that because I don't have expertise in that area, but enough so that like him and I can have lessons and we did it this semester. He was working on Jack Teagarden. At least we can talk about it and say like, oh, he does this. This is interesting. Point out like the, you know, the different things about it, the different stylistic things. So, you know, just because you're not a practitioner of that thing doesn't mean you can't know about it. So my theory is that you should know about it all <laughs> you know you don't have to play it all but you should know about you know all the different parts of jazz history and be able to function in those things i don't know so i'm getting off the question here so has your band ever had to stop in the middle of a piece either when you were a sideman or a leader i mean sometimes you would count it off and it doesn't count off right and you just start again so yes <laughs> there was a my band likes to talk about this incident one of the first gigs that we did 
it would have been in 2010 or 2011 when I first got my band together in New York. We played at this little club called Something Jazz Club. So on that gig, it was like the first time we had a gig and I brought in all new music. We rehearsed one time, we got there and like there was, a, they like to bring this up to me and they still say it to me because like we got into a solo section that was like supposed to be cued and I cued it and it didn't happen. And then I, I just like yelled, I was like, do something. And they like to bring that up to me <laughs> still 10 years later. Yeah, but so yes, it had, we've stopped before. If something doesn't go right, especially if it's a live recording, there's no, or if, I mean, there's no shame if it's like the wrong tempo and it's just gonna be bad, just stop and start again. I don't know. I'd rather the music be good than you like protect your ego about like, oh, it's the wrong tempo. We're gonna play this whole song at the wrong tempo. Cause I've done that too. And that sucks. <laughs> You're taking a deep dive into Benny. Okay. Just curious because I've seen you. Yes, we've played together. Any stories of working together? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, we played a lot of different kind of gigs together. We play, we've played at Smalls, we've played at different big bands and different recording sessions and ones where he's like singing out front and playing in the section. Played at 54 Below, Charlie Rosen's big band, which became the 8-bit eight bit, eight bit big band. Yeah, I don't have any particular stories, you know. you. I will say like his the personality he has on Instagram is like the same as what he is in real life, you know. He's like got a big personality, man. Um, great trumpet player, very supernatural, you know. If you could play another instrument as well as you play trombone, what instrument would you play and why? Man, I like bass and I like drums, I like piano. I would play a rhythm section instrument. One, like drums is just, you drive the band. And bass, like you control a lot of stuff from the bass chair, you know. I think it would be bass, you know. Piano seems just too hard. <laughs> to really get it be masterful of. But um, if we're saying that I'm automatically just as good as at the piano as I am at trombone, then I guess I could say piano also. Um, I don't know. Rhythm section instrument, for sure. And I've known a lot of trombone players that play good bass. So and I love they play good piano too. So I don't know, that's on my list, man. I got a bass right over there, but I don't, I never play it. I thought if I bought one and put it on the wall that I would play it. It wasn't really, it wasn't correct. My assumption was not correct that I would be as dedicated as I thought I would be. The curse of every trombonist to envy the instruments that get more gigs. There you go. D deep diving into someone's albums, in what order would you listen to their albums? First album, the last album, most influential albums, so most obscure. I don't know that there's a right answer to that, but what would I do? I would start with whatever I had, and then I would dig back through a discography, probably, and go chronologically, and hear from, from wherever I started, kind of work backwards and forwards from there. Um, and then it will take some work to find the more obscure ones because you're going to talk to people and they'll be like, oh, yeah, he actually this person, you know, she actually played on this record and then you didn't even know. So I think that's how it kind of goes out like a web, you know, and you got that's why, you know, in our fundamentals class, one of the first things we talk about is keeping a listening journal and, and writing stuff down so you can know like, oh, yeah, I did check that out. Like I did remember like these people are on it and it's on this label and I can find it because sometimes things come down off of YouTube or get taken down off streaming. And if you want to be able to find things again, you know, like sometimes you got to keep that log. So that's what we talk about. Like the first one of the first classes is like, how do we keep a listening log? What do we, what's an important stuff to write down? What are we trying to get out of the recordings? What did you like about it? That kind of stuff especially if you're doing like an actual deep dive for an educational purpose. Uh, as a student, what were your favorite things to work on and shed once the school year and commitments were complete? I kind of always had like a mission of some sort in between every school year, like I was gonna get better at a specific thing. One year it was to play through the Omnibook. That was one year, one summer, because um, 
a guy, a great trombonist named Charlie Halloran, who is now in New Orleans and plays mostly trad stuff. He was a master student. And in between his first two years, he did that exact thing. And I was like, dude, you sound so good. Like, well, how did you, what did you do over the summer? And he's like, oh, I just played through the Omnibook. It makes you know what jazz is supposed to sound like. And then you can just play like that. So um, that's to say, like, you know, one summer I played through that. One summer it was trying to figure out how to learn tunes by ear, you know. Like I've said before, like I threw away my real books. Like that was in the summer, you know. That was like during grad school, during the summer. Like throw them away. Just get rid of them and just go for it. Learning everything by ear. Um, the summer after I graduated from undergrad, it was like I'm going to get this tape together for Juilliard. That was one thing. Like I've always had like a mission, like some kind of project over the summer. And then when I got done, it was like, oh, let me go back through all the stuff that I never got to. And it was usually like little devices, little patterns, things that I wanted to, you know, be able to implement into my playing. So it's changed over the years. But um, it was always like sometimes it was like open shapes or sometimes it was uh, triads or sometimes it was triads with a flat two or triads with a flat six or any of these little shapes that, you know, are there any musicians whose biographies you've read? Yeah, I've read a bunch of them. Uh, I, you know, Herbie's I've read, Miles's I've read, Quincy Jones. I really was inspired by Quincy Jones's. And the Monk one, that one's a real challenge, but I really was inspired by that one too. There's a lot of context in there about him, his music, and just the scene, like the jazz scene and how it kind of developed. And so to me, that was super interesting and super um, eye-opening about like the practicalities of like things that we think are different that aren't or like that jazz used to be more popular, but it's like, it, I think it's, it's always been a struggle since the forties when it became non-dance music, you know? Like, so like this ongoing problem has happened for a while. Not necessarily saying it's a problem, but just saying like, you know, the, the challenge of playing music that's more for the sake of art than the sake of um, like dancing is uh, an ongoing challenge. And so anyway, those ones I liked. Duke's, Duke Ellington's uh, biography is good too. Uh, Brian is a true slide. Hampton played on a straight bass trombone. When he came to Eastman, when I was an undergrad, he did, yes. Uh, I don't think his language is any different between tenor or bass. I think he plays straight up like bebop all the time, whether it's ten whether it's on tenor or, or straight bass. I don't think it's any different. How do you personally divide your practice time between studying harmony and its application in 12 keys separate from working on harmony within specific tunes you might be learning? So I would try to isolate those things that you're talking about playing in 12 keys in tunes so that you can work on tunes that have those things in them because working on just like isolated um, like two five patterns or like sequences to me is not a thing that's very musical. So Practicing stuff outside of a musical context is really hard for me, and I don't like to do it. And I would imagine that's the same for others. So, like, if you're just like, oh, let me play all these two fives down in half steps, like, that's an exercise, and I'll do that, sure. Like a line or something down in, or up in half steps or around the circle fourths. Um, I think you got to um, find applications. Here's a great example. Uh, giant steps, right? It's kind of exercise-y. I would much rather play countdown. 26-2, satellite, my students already know this, but uh, I would much rather play those because it's like a more of like a practical use of a pattern for improvisation, right? Or a harmonic pattern. My favorite way to work on harmony is to write at the piano, and then from there, if I'm struggling, I write a tune that uses that thing. So that might be 
you know, I have a tune, the first tune on my first record is called Alternate Agenda. That tune came from me trying to learn the difference between a melodic minor and a, and a Dorian minor, right? So the first half of the tune is modes of the melodic minor. Second half of the tune is modes of uh, is a Dorian. And then the bridge is uh, learning about how to play slash chords, like diminished slash chords. Slash chords over the diminished, rather, is what I mean. So that's what I do. I find musical situations to actually work on those things. Are people ever turning a profit with albums these days? Are they sacrificing money to have that artistic fulfillment? Yes, they are most of the time. I um, was reading what, uh, like, kind of like the industry standard. Obviously, if you don't know, I also run a record label. So what the industry standard is for, like, indie labels of, like, having a small release be successful and they say like it starts to become profitable at 125 million streams and i would venture to say i have never seen a jazz album with 125 million streams um there could be some i haven't looked extensively but um 125 million streams is what they say and um i wouldn't say that necessarily everyone is losing money all the time on all of their projects i would say that having an album and making that investment allows you to be booked in a variety of ways uh, both as you know an educator as a performer as a composer as you know people buying the cd like there's a lot of revenue streams that come out of making an album that don't have anything to do with the actual streaming or sales itself and if you're not so it's kind of like a it's a cycle of like, if you're not putting out records, you're not in the press, so then you don't get booked, right? Or the opposite. You gotta put out records so that people in the press and industry notice that you still are alive and doing this. And then to help you have more awareness, to allow you to get booked, to allow you to do more things. So uh, if you, the thing is like, yeah, you're not making a ton of money putting on a record, but at the same time, if you don't do it, you're kind of invisible. You know, in the in the eyes of the industry, if you're not sending stuff out to radio, if you're not sending out to the press and critics, like you aren't there. <laughs> you might be known. You might even have a huge audience, but you might not be known uh, beyond beyond that within the industry. And if you're not known, you can't get booked. Like pe lots of people knew who Snarky Puppy was, but they weren't getting booked on major festivals until they won a Grammy, right? So until you get that traditional stamp. You know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, they've been here the whole time. <laughs> but here they are. You know what I mean? So you got to play the game. Uh, and you can you can also decide not to play the game, but you can't go in the middle. You know, did you get to spend some time studying with Barry Harris? So, yeah, he came to Juilliard while I was at Juilliard. That was the most I've, time I've spent with Barry Harris is when he came. I still have this um, recording of the master class. He taught us. He, we went through um, Cherokee really, really fast. And he like taught everyone like a line. He had this whole like saying about it too, like a series of vocabulary across the different parts of the tune. And I have to go back and find it. I wrote it out. I wrote it down somewhere also. But um, it was super helpful in getting inside the language of bebop. And he was talking about all kinds of things. You know, he's like the master of bebop harmony. So I would highly recommend if you don't know who Barry Harris is, that you should go on YouTube and watch his um, master classes because he talks a lot about a lot of things. He's very opinionated, which is great, you know, but, you know, he's great educator, you know, very great educator. He runs his own thing in New York uh, classes, obviously not right this second, but he was. And uh, anyway, so he's really great. So check him out if you don't know him. I can't really answer this question. He, he asks, like, what do you think about when you're playing over slash chords? The, the only way I can really answer it is like 
what is that sound and then I play that sound because there's there's an infinite number of slash chords not infinite but there's a, so many any two chord, any two triads you put together make its own hexatonic or pentatonic if they share one note so so I'm going to leave you all for the weekend I hope you had a wonderful Friday thanks for being here and uh, we will catch you next week and uh, thanks for watching thanks for listening uh, thanks for asking questions so we'll catch you all soon